Good morning. I am Allison Swinney. I'm a junior at Alabama. I'm double majoring in dance and international studies. And this morning we'll be reading 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that our ears would be attentive, our eyes would be open to behold wonderful things in your word. Lord, may we see what is good. May we not just see it, but may we desire it. May our eyes be fixed upon a Savior who is all of our goodness, all of our righteousness. And may we love him and may our hearts long for him more than ever before. We ask this as we look at your word now that you would speak and work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the good life? What is the good life? If you were to ask your neighbors that question, how do you think they would respond? My impression from all the places I've lived is that the answer of my neighbors varied a good bit depending upon where I was in the world. My impression from my neighbors as a child growing up, small town Alabama, the good life was going to the games on Saturday, but also the good life was being able to afford that second house on the lake. You know people like that? Second house on the lake. Lake Martin was near Sylacauga where I grew up, but it could have been Lake Gunnersville. It could have been Smith Lake. It could have been a number of lakes in Alabama. We have more navigable waterways than any other state, just so you know that. The lake was where you went every weekend to ski, to boat, to wakeboard, to relax, and just unwind from the cares of the week. In Alabama, lake life was the good life. But then we moved to England, and our neighbor's answer changed. The good life was found in the small English village with the village green and the sheep that would come up and greet you, with the public footpaths for walking and the maypole on the green for maypole dancing on May Day, and where the village pub was the place that everyone gathered around the fire most nights to tell stories and laugh after the work of the day. And it wasn't really an English village without some unique local practices and customs. A lot of times that was some quirky local sport that they invented. Uh, I had friends who lived in a village uh, in the Peak District called Stony Middleton. I've always liked that name, Stony Middleton. There was a stream running through this village. I've preached in an 1800 uh, chapel built in the 1800s in that village. And the men in that village would form teams and do a game of tug of war every year, not across the stream, but in the stream itself, doing tug of war. In England, village life 
was the good life. But then my family and I, we moved to Paris, an urban sprawl, 12 million plus people. And how our neighbors answer that question changed again. The good life was found in enjoying all that the city had to offer, all Paris had to offer, while also being free to escape from the city and the, and the masses of people to a place of solitude, all alone in the country. The good life was found in having that Parisian lifestyle, that a Parisian apartment, and a country house in Brittany or in Provence. The good life was found in eating your meals outside much of the year. It was found in fresh bread and sea-salted butter and aged wine. The small group of friends that you made in school enjoying those things with you. In France, the good life was Parisian life with an escape plan. To give you just one more example, in France, we also had many Nigerian friends. And I remember they told me, I didn't ask them, but they told me what the good life was for Nigerians. They told me the Nigerian good life was being overseas somewhere, missing Nigeria. The good life was that sweet ache you had for life at home while enjoying life abroad somewhere else. So, with all those answers in mind, what is the good life? Whatever it is, one thing is certain. Everyone wants it. Everyone wants it. We all are seeking after happiness. We all want to love life and see good days, to quote verse 10 in our passage. No one is looking at verse 10 and saying, no, I don't want that. I'd rather life be miserable and my days be bad than to love and see good days. No, we all would rather be enjoying the good life. Our main problem is we're at a loss of how to do that. We're at a loss of how to get there. For many people, the good life seems always just out of reach. If I could only have that relationship, if I could only get that person to notice me, if I could only get that job, that promotion, if I could only afford that house or that vacation, then I will have arrived. Then I will be enjoying the good life. But we all know what happens. Either you never get there, you live frustrated because you never arrive at those things that you think will give you pleasure and joy, or you do get what you want, only to discover it didn't satisfy like you thought it would. The reason for this is that the real good life looks different from what everyone thinks it does. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, If I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. God made you to find ultimate satisfaction in something the world cannot give you. That's why the good life always seems just out of reach. It's out of reach because we're pursuing it the wrong way. The good life in this world doesn't come through the pursuit of our comforts, having more and more, 
It doesn't come through the pursuit of our comforts, but through the pursuit of our creator. That's the missing truth. That's the missing piece that makes life an unsolvable puzzle for most people. The life you really want doesn't come through the way most people think it will. It doesn't come through looking to your comforts. It only comes through looking to your creator. When we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, we begin to see what the good life really looks like. Here, in 1 Peter, here is the destination. And Peter tells us here that the good life is much more about our character growing than it is about our comforts increasing. How do we make that shift happen? How do we make that shift in focus happen? Peter says, we only arrive at the good life by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus who reshapes our character to look more and more like his. I've once heard an older pastor say, he said, I I could give my people good principles and perhaps they could use them to modify their behavior over time but I discovered that when I look at Jesus I find myself being changed by him right then in the moment the very act of looking at Jesus with the eyes of faith changes my heart in the moment suddenly I want to be sympathetic toward others because I see Jesus being sympathetic toward me. I want to love others because I see him loving me. I want to be compassionate with others because I see him being compassionate with me. As I look at Jesus, I want to be humble because I see how he humbled himself for me. So, this morning... Let's spend some time looking at Jesus through the lens of verses 8 through 12 and see if our character can begin to reflect these qualities a bit better. It may feel at first like putting on clothes that don't quite fit, but the more we look with faith at Jesus, the better these verses will look on us, the better they'll fit. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing I want you to see is this. The good life is found in being like-minded. The good life is found in being like-minded. Peter says that, verse 8, look at verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. Harmonious. All of you be like-minded. Have the same mind. Be in harmony. Be like-minded. It might seem odd at first to hear someone say, look at Jesus and be like-minded. At first glance, Jesus appears to be the most unlike-minded person ever to live. In his best-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically says, everything you thought was right is actually the opposite. That's true. Turn it on its head. You thought blessing was found in riches and abundance? No, it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. You thought the strong and powerful will inherit the earth? No. It's the meek and the gentle who will inherit. You thought the popular ones were the ones who ought to be happy? No, it's the persecuted ones who ought to rejoice 
and be glad. Everything you thought about these things, Jesus says, just turn it on its head if you want to know how God sees it. Jesus comes to us as the only person who sees the world right way up. All the rest of us have been born upside down and we see the world upside down. But Jesus comes. He turns us on our, turns us on our feet for the first time. We see the world as he sees it. Because Jesus sees the world so differently from us, he sees the world that way, the way God sees it, Jesus might feel like the last person in the world that we could ever be like-minded with. But here is where Jesus' spirit and his word come to the rescue. In God's word, we have God's mind revealed to us through, spirits inspired, through words inspired by God's spirit. Here in the Bible, we have the mind of Christ written and applied to us by the spirit of Christ. This is special revelation. Christian, you do not need to look elsewhere. God has spoken a sufficient word to you. And the word says, this word says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our like-mindedness isn't to be found in common cultural values or in traditions we share or in backing a similar political candidate. That's not where it starts. Our like-mindedness is to come through having what we think transformed by what God thinks, by what God says. This is what the Bible calls us to do. Remember Philippians chapter 2? Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. The way Jesus saw the world is the way we want to see the world. His mind is the mind we want. His mindset then becomes our basis for unity, our basis for like-minded harmony. Arriving at this like-mindedness with Jesus and with one another doesn't come through sitting on mountaintops, waiting for some kind of special revelation from God. It doesn't come through letting go, emptying our minds in some kind of Eastern form of meditation. It actually comes through filling our minds with God's Word. And where, where do we get that like-mindedness? We get it from directly from the source here. Here is our source of harmony. Here is our source of like-mindedness. As we look at Jesus in his word, we see our minds being renewed and transformed into seeing the world the way Jesus sees it. The way to the good life isn't found in going after what you think will satisfy, but in changing what you think will satisfy. By changing the way you think altogether, by becoming like-minded with Christ. That's the way to the good life. By becoming like-minded with the word of Christ. So, we see, number one, the good life is found in being like-minded with Christ. We see, secondly, the good life is found in being sympathetic. Sympathetic. Look again at verse 8. To sum up, all of you be like-minded, harmonious, be sympathetic. Sympathetic, showing sympathy. Showing sympathy comes 
more easily to some of us than it does to others. Have you noticed that? Part of that is how easily we can imagine ourselves in someone else's shoes. Can you put yourself in someone else's skin and feel what they're going through? Some of us naturally don't bother, and it shows that we don't. Some of us do that very naturally, but we do it to an unhealthy degree often or in unhealthy ways. Whether being sympathetic comes easily to you or not, I'll tell you how to get better at it in the healthiest way possible. In three words, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Put yourself in his shoes and feel how great his sympathy is for you. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Do you want to become more sympathetic with others? Then fix your eyes on how sympathetic Jesus is with you. As your faithful advocate before the Father, see how sympathetic he is toward you. Through the window of the scripture, put yourself in his skin, in his shoes, and witness his sympathy toward messed up people like you. Then you'll be far more sympathetic. And with Jesus motivating your sympathy, guess what? He gets the credit. He gets all the glory for it, not you. Imagine an entire society filled with Jesus-motivated sympathy for one another. That society would be well on its way to the good life, right? Especially when it's coupled with this next characteristic. Look at verse 8 again. Be sympathetic. Verse 8, be brotherly. Brotherly. Be filled with brotherly love. Here's our third point. The good life is found in brotherly love. Brotherly love. Where does this kind of love come from? Where do you look if you want to want a motive to love others this way, as, as part of the family, as a brother? Answer, still the same answer. You look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You look at Jesus and see his great love for you proven at the cross. Where do you look if you want a motivation to love strangers like they are part of the family? You look at Jesus, who takes you as a stranger and brings you in to God's family. Where do you look if you want a motivation to love those who hate you? Those who consider themselves to be your enemy. How can you love them? Where do you look? You look to Jesus and see in him a love that pursues you even while you were his enemy. Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And guess what? You are my friends, Jesus says. You are my friends. We innately know that the greatest love is self-sacrificing love. We innately know that. A husband gladly lays down some of his rights in love for a wife. A mother daily makes self-sacrificial choices out of love for her children. Jesus shows the greatest love of all for his friends by taking their death and their punishment, their eternal punishment upon himself on a cross, dying in our place. This is the great love that Jesus offers to you. And the more your heart embraces it, the more you will love your friends, the more you will love your family, the more you will be able to love your enemies because it will be motivated and sourced by the love Jesus has for you. Imagine the society filled with Jesus-like brotherly love for one another. If you're looking for the good life, that's where it will be, right? That's where it will be, where our hearts toward one another have been reshaped by Jesus' love toward us. Here's a fourth point from verse 8. We've seen the good life is found in being like-minded. Number two, in being sympathetic, in being brother, in brotherly love. And number four, the good life is found in being compassionate compassionate. Verse 8 calls us to be kind-hearted, to be compassionate, to be tender-hearted toward others. Where many cultures equate the good life with pulling away, Jesus equates it with heart-pouring out compassion. Have you ever felt like you just really needed a break? You really needed a vacation? You desperately needed to pull away from work and get off on a holiday. Even Jesus felt this way. Do you remember this scene? Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Jesus said to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat, Mark says. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves, but the people saw them going. And many recognized them and ran together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw the large crowds and what? Sorry, guys, I'm on vacation. No, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus needed a break. He needed a vacation. His disciples needed it. But he also saw others whose need was greater still. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Showing compassion in this case meant that Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced for love's sake. Willing to be inconvenienced for love's sake. That's what compassion often is. Being willing to be inconvenienced for love's sake. 
boy, there's, there's no greater act of compassion than the incarnation, right? God takes on our flesh, willing to be inconvenienced for love's sake. Jesus compassionately feeds the people's hungry souls and then miraculously feeds their bodies as well. And it isn't an isolated incident of compassion. The Gospels give us snapshot after snapshot of the compassion of Christ to the poor and downcast, to the blind and lame, to sinners and foreigners, to those grieving over the broken bits of this world. Jesus is continually showing compassion. The gospel gives us snapshot after snapshot of the compassion of Jesus. God gives us these pictures for a reason. He gives us these pictures because he wants us to know that the compassion Jesus displays in the gospel is the exact same compassion he has toward you, toward us today. It's the very same compassion he has for you. So, do you want to become a more compassionate person? then look long and look lovingly at Jesus. See the compassion he pours out on you like a mighty river being poured into a very small bowl. That's you. His compassion is so great, so steady, that it cannot help but overflow the bowl and soak all the people around you. Imagine the world where Christ's compassion overflows all around. Most people seeking the good life think it's about comfort and fail to see how it is connected to compassion. Compassion. There's a fifth connection Peter makes in verse 5. We've seen that the good life is found in being like-minded, in being sympathetic, in brotherly love, in being compassionate, and... Number five, the good life is found in being humble. The good life is found in being humble. It's found in humility. Verse eight says, be compassionate and humble in spirit. Humble in spirit. Think for a minute about the people that others point at and say, they've got it all. They've got it all. They've got all the beauty. They've got the health, they've got the talent, they've got the wealth. They're living the good life. Think about them. But all the things we naturally think produce the good life go a long way to producing something else. You know what it is? Pride. Pride. And pride is the constant joy killer. Pride is a gratitude squasher. Pride keeps us from experiencing the good life by taking good things and making them our due, making them our right. We've earned them. We deserve these good things. Pride makes us not nearly as grateful and as happy as we should be. And makes us feel deeply offended when those good things we thought we were our due are taken away. 
from us. But guess what, church? All human pride must flee in the presence of Jesus. Jesus reminds us, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Jesus restores a healthy sense of humility to us by reminding us that everything is God's gift, undeserved, you deserve wrath, I took that for you, now you get grace. Everything we get is a gracious gift to be enjoyed with humble and grateful hearts. Jesus not only restores our humility through his teaching, but even more powerfully through his example. Remember the call from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a call to embrace Christ's example of humility in the incarnation. Remember Philippians 2 says, Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we want to grow in humility, we need to look at Jesus. We need to stand in wonder at the incarnation and say to ourselves, if God humbled himself to serve me, I've got all the motivation I will ever need to humble myself to serve others. If Jesus humbled himself to the point of death for me, I've got all the motivation I will ever need to humble myself and pour out my life for others. Verse 8 seems like an unlikely path to the good life, the path of humility, of laying down our life and our rights. It's the path we probably wouldn't naturally think to take. We wouldn't naturally pick it apart from Jesus' gospel opening the door and fueling our progress down this path. It's not an easy road or a natural one. That's why point number six is this. The good life is found in changing our default settings. The good life is found in changing our default settings. We see this in verse 9. Verse 9, Peter says, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Are you the kind of person who gets an electronic device and the very first thing you do is you go into the settings and start changing all the defaults? Are you that person? You want things to look and work differently than the way they do out of the box. Uh, You're actually excited to change all the default settings because you think you know better how this device ought to work. Well, guess what? As people, we have default settings too. When someone does something bad to us, what's our default setting? Do something bad in return. When someone says something hurtful to us, even if it's someone 
who loves us, we love, what's our default setting? Say something hurtful back. Verse 9 says that Jesus wants to change our default settings in life. Instead of repaying like for like, offense for offense, insult with insult, Jesus turns our response on its head. He makes it where we want to repay evil with good. We pray for those who persecute us. When a curse comes our way, we respond with a blessing. How is that possible? How can Jesus change the default settings of our heart? How does he, he changes it, he does it, he, he does change it by changing what our hearts believe. You want to change your actions, you got to change what your heart believes. He changes what our hearts believe by giving us a hope that wasn't there before. Verse 9, we're not returning evil for evil. Why? Because you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Jesus changes our default settings by giving us a greater hope, a greater inheritance. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for, why? Because your reward in heaven is great. Your reward in heaven is great. Jesus changes our default settings towards suffering with this promise. You will inherit a blessing. Because you will inherit a blessing, be a blessing. Give a blessing. Glory is coming on the other side of suffering. And this promise for us is so transformative. It's so transformative for the apostles that they can say crazy things. And we can say crazy things. The apostles say crazy things like this. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. That sounds crazy. The apostles can say, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The apostles can go out from the beating rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. The Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews, that what, you know what they do? They accept with joy the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Here is an unexpected key to the good life. An unexpected key to the good life. Experiencing the good life now only happens when you believe your best life is yet to come. Did you get that? Experiencing the good life now only happens when you believe the best is yet to come. If all your good has to come now, if all your pleasure has to come now, you put too much pressure on this life. Life won't be good. It'll feel hollow and fleeting, and over far too quickly. But with Jesus, there can be joy even in the bad, even in the bad situations, because you have a hope that so much more is yet to come. The best is yet to come. A world full of joy without end is yet to come. Embracing Jesus is our entrance into the good life, 
And here is one last thing it'll mean for us. One last thing. Point number six was the good life is found in changing our default settings. Seventh, final point is this. The good life is found in turning from our original trajectory. In turning from our original trajectory. Peter begins quoting from Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12. Look at verse 10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days, that's what we all want, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. In order to love life and see good days, we must turn away from some things and turn toward others. The way to the good life is found in putting off some things and putting off the old self and in putting on the new. The way to the good life is found in turning from our original trajectory in life to turning to a new one. And this shouldn't surprise us because this is exactly what Peter has been saying all along. The verse right before. If we're to love life and see good days, we have to have our default settings changed. This change only happens by looking at Jesus, being transformed on the inside by faith in his gospel. And no surprise again, here is where following Jesus leads us. Verse 10, keep your tongues from speaking evil and your lips from speaking deceit. We are to become truth speakers like Jesus. Instead of our lips hurting others, our lips are now on a new trajectory. Instead of hurting others with our words, our lips are now meant to bring grace and life to others. Whatever our selfish pursuits were before, we are now turning away from evil and we are seeking to do good. We are seeking peace and pursuing it, verse 11. We do all this knowing that God sees us, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The early Christians in Rome used to greet one another with the Latin phrase, Coram Deo, walk before the face of God. It was a reminder that God always sees. God always hears us. If the world is a stage, then God is our primary audience. We live before his face. He sees us always. Therefore, we live to please him. He's the audience. We live to please him, not the other actors who are playing their parts on stage. This is a key part of loving life and seeing good days. The key is, this is a key part of our new trajectory in life. The key is this, believe that God sees you. Believe that he sees you always. Believe that God sees you as you enjoy that sunset. Believe that God sees you as you enjoy the beauty of that flower. Believe that God is with you as you feel the sting and pricks of the broken bits of this world. The way to the good life is not what most people think. This is the way to love life and see good days. Fix your eyes on Jesus, believing 
that he has his eyes fixed on you. Let's pray. Father, may our hearts be changed, our default settings changed, our trajectory of life changed by an encounter with your word, by an encounter with the living Christ in his word. Lord, may we put aside all self-help programs and, and seven steps to a better us, and may we exclusively fix our eyes upon Jesus. May we see his love. May we see his compassion. May we see his arms wide open to welcome us. And may that change us from the inside. May that change our, 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 the way we welcome others, the way we forgive, the way we love, the way we accept one another. May our society be changed as we fix our eyes upon a Savior who has moved heaven and earth to save us. Lord, may we respond with faith this morning. May every heart be embracing and believing in this Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.